Keep in touch with the Wolf Connection podcast on our Instagram handle at the Wolf Connection pod or email us your questions, comments, and guest ideas to podcast at wolfconnection.org. Thank you for your support and howls to you all. Welcome to the Wolf Connection podcast. I'm your host, John Calvin. So we jumped back to Washington State. So we had two Red Wolf episodes that you guys listened to consecutively. And now we jump back to the state of Washington to really a very interesting project. Uh, It was a book. It was in a book that we finished uh, a couple of weeks ago. And they mentioned the Predator Prey, the Washington Predator Prey Project. And in one of those individuals is joining us today. She is a wildlife ecologist. I will run through her many (laughs) impressive accolades. So she has a bachelor's in physics from Lewis and Clark College. Uh, She has mechanical engineering from University of Southern California. She has a master's in environmental science from Yale and a PhD from the University of Washington, where is she coming to us from today? She is Taylor Gans. Taylor, so great to meet you and can't wait to talk about the project. How are you? Uh, I'm great. I'm really excited to chat with you today. Thanks for having me. Of course. Yeah, it's really great to dive into a lot of these projects, and especially when it's something that's put in perspective in a, in a book that I think a lot of people have read. Um, it spoke about a range rider friend of ours, Daniel Curry. So it really touched all of these um, aspects really of Washington concerning wolves, concerning prey, concerning ranching and all this other stuff. And really, it seems as though the project that you have been involved in for roughly five years is somewhat at the scientific focal point of this. Um, But before we get to that, I just want to get an idea about your background. Where did you grow up? Are you a Washingtonian? Did you move there? Was this always your course of, you know, direction where you wanted to go? Where, how did this all start for you? Yeah. Um, short answer. It's been a long and winding road to get to where I am now. I actually grew up in Southern California in Los Angeles and was lucky enough to grow up in a pretty outdoorsy family. So I got to spend a lot of time out in Idaho and Colorado and the Sierra Nevadas as I was growing up. And then um, after college, bounced around quite a lot, but was mainly based out of Lander, Wyoming for about five years before starting grad school. Wow. And so what's the, what was the draw? So obviously outdoorsy family, this, this seemed to be like it was something that was already in your bones you wanted to do. What led you to, what, what was sort of, I guess, if you could pick a point in your earlier life that was the the turning point of saying, okay, I'm going to start to be a wildlife ecologist. I'm going to go in this direction specifically. Yeah. I mean, I think there has always been a very strong pull for me for um, kind of anything environmental and outdoor related. Um, As I mentioned, I've always loved being outside and simultaneous with that. uh, I've always loved the sciences, Um, always my favorite interest and studied science in undergrad and then kind of made a hard pivot after getting out of school and actually worked in the outdoor industry for five years, um, guiding and leading expeditions. And that's actually what led me back to science. I ended up getting a job on a wildlife research team that was looking at the impacts of winter recreation on Canada lakes in the San Juan Mountains of Colorado. And if you're familiar with that mountain range, you know it's um, very steep, very snowy in the winter and high avalanche risk um, for much of the winter. And so I think I kind of weaseled my way onto the crew because I had 
uh, a strong skill set in managing um, travel and avalanche terrain. And that was something they were looking for on the team while we were out trapping and collaring Canada Lynx. But that was kind of a big aha moment for me about the ways that I could sort of bring these two passions together, um, love for nature and the sciences. I think many people are exposed to this in undergrad. I didn't even realize that you could study wildlife ecology. I kind of thought there were the people on National Geographic and, and that was the end of the road. But that project really got me started thinking about what I wanted to do next and how I could do more conservation-oriented research. Um, and it didn't happen right away, but ultimately led to me going to grad school a few years later. Yeah. Did it give you a little bit of an edge in that you were in sort of the outdoor recreation industry or in that sort of surface to when you started to work in the Washington Predator Pay Project? Because you it looked, it's almost, you saw it from one side. I mean, I know you were in the sciences and all that educational wise, but now you have this perception of looking at it from the recreation point of view and understanding how these two places sort of coexist. Did that help you a little bit as you started to get into this project around 2017 or so? Yeah, um, that's an interesting question. I don't know to a strong degree that I really think about the systems from a recreation perspective, but in terms of doing field work and working with people, it's something I draw on all the time. So both from the perspective of just feeling really comfortable outside, I can focus on collecting data. I've been out in all kinds of conditions and all kinds of terrain. And so that's not a stressful element. And then also so much of what I learned in terms of managing a crew of people, I worked for Knowles, the National Outdoor Leadership Team for a long time, and that informs so much about how I think of collaborative research. So it certainly comes in, um, in how I do my work. Yeah, it seems like it's everybody we speak to, it really seems it's more about managing people as opposed to managing or studying the wildlife. It's really getting around those people issues that uh, in order to get the work done. Yeah, certainly a huge part of just being out in there and collecting the data that you need. Yeah, absolutely. So just talk about just what's the, what's the, fo when did the, the Predator Pay Project start? And what is the overall, I guess, focus or mission, if anybody was to look at it? Because the, the website is, for a scientific website, is extremely well put together. And there's just a lot of information. So just give everybody, yeah, no, it's, it's great. Um, it's, it's very clean. It's, you know, looks graphically uh, beautiful, but just give everybody like when they go on there, what's the, what's the main focus so that people get an idea of that. Yeah. So the Washington predator prey project is all about looking at the return of wolves to Washington state and understanding how they're impacting the broad ecosystem. A large focus of that um, and, and the part of the project that I've focused on especially is understanding how they impact the ungulate population. So deer, elk, and moose in Washington, although moose wasn't a big part of the Washington Predator Prey Project. Um, the really neat thing about this project is we have a number of different people working on it from different perspectives. It's a collaboration between the University of Washington and the Washington Department of Fish and Wildlife. And there are researchers on both sides of it. And so everyone is looking at this system from different perspectives. We have people who are looking at interactions between wolves and other top predators, so cougars. We have uh, people doing research on interaction between wolves and mesopredators like coyotes and bobcats. 
I really look at things from the perspective of the ungulate population and then also camera trapping work going on uh, to look at really broad community dynamics of the wildlife. And all of that is really through the lens of human dominated landscapes versus other places that wolves have been studied extensively like Yellowstone National Park, um, Isle Royal, where these are protected parks and humans aren't living across the area permanently. What can you give us historically about the ungulate population in Washington state? Cause this is your special, or this is something that you're, you know, you, you've studied for, for a while because it's always a topic of conversation, a topic of controversy, however you want to spin it, whoever is, depending upon who you're speaking with, whatever group it may be, where did, where was the ungulate population sitting, I guess, prior to wolves making their way into Washington state and where do they kind of sit now? Was there any sort of jump negatively or positive? Or, and what was, I guess, the social focus about ungulates um, and the, the way that they viewed these animals uh, as a populace? Yeah. So, I mean, I think in large part, the predator prey project was started because there were concerns that this return of wolves could decrease the ungulate population. So they, um, the initiators of the project, which was actually the Washington state legislature really wanted some good science and good data to inform that. You know, I think it's really interesting to think about the longer term ungulate dynamics on the project, we are just looking at the snapshot in time of 2017 to 2021. So that is a pretty narrow four-year period. And so we have a pretty good idea of what's happening in that picture. What we don't have a great idea of is what's happened over the longer time span, like 40 or 50 years. Uh, it, it's a very simple question to ask how many deer are out there and how has that population changed over the long term? It's actually a very, very hard question to answer scientifically. Deer are really hard to count. They all look the same. Uh, and so there's not really good quantitative information on that. There, the Department of Fish and Wildlife here in Washington has information on hunter trends and their successes, and so you can infer some things from that. I certainly do a lot of talking with the private landowners that I interact with out in the field who have been incredibly supportive of the project. And what I hear from most of them is that, you know, 40 or 50 years ago, there were a lot more deer around. However, there's a lot of things that have changed in the past 40 or 50 years. That was a period when pretty much all predators were exterminated from the landscape. That was a period of very heavy timber harvest. So you, um, and timber harvest can actually really increase the forage base for deer. And so to say that the deer population could be less now than it was 40 or 50 years ago um, doesn't really tell us a whole lot about what might be driving that. Um, that was likely a historical anomaly that is never going to occur again. And then if you want to go even further back to 200 or so years ago, I mean, that's an entirely other story. Um, there probably weren't too many white-tailed deer in the areas that I research where there's white-tailed deer all over the place right now. In, but in this kind of work, how do you make distinctions as, a res as researchers between population changes due to predator-prey dynamics ver versus... CWD versus hard winters versus uh, losing habitat, and, and if you and if you really can't, then how do you how do you come to 
confident conclusions about something with this many variables? Yeah. So the good news is we can do a pretty, we can do a very good job of understanding the factors influencing the ungulate populations in that snapshot period that we studied. So from 2017 to 2021. Um, and I'm happy to explain how we do that. But we aren't able to compare very well to periods before that research when we don't have good consistent data. So yeah, we can't say a whole lot about those longer term drivers, although there's other great research out there from different systems that we can infer quite a lot from. Um, yeah, but we can't really investigate that. Right. So what do you what do you expect to see when a new predator is released in a landscape where they weren't just years before in terms of prey populations? Yeah, well, uh, I hate to be the scientist in the room, but it depends. Um, you know, there's so many factors there. One of the things that is interesting about the predator-prey project in Washington is that when wolves returned to Washington, this wasn't an empty landscape. This is an area with um, cougars that occur widely across the state and relative to other areas of the state occur in um, higher densities where we do our research. Um, there's also black bears and coyotes and bobcats. So we're not just looking at one predator coming into the landscape um, or one predator occurring on the landscape. It's one added to many. And so that was kind of what made the project so interesting is what is happening with these complex dynamics, because not only do we want to consider what that one predator, you know, the wolf is going to do to deer and elk populations, but how do wolves interact with cougars and coyotes and bobcats who also kill and eat deer? Um, and so thinking about those indirect effects as well becomes important. Right. Because in theory, it's not you're you're adding predators to to a landscape, but it's not so much as like uh, mountain lions kill five deer uh, a month coyotes kill five deer a month. And when we add wolves, they'll kill five deer a month. And therefore you'll have 15 dead deer a month because wolves are interacting, like you said, with mountain lions and coyotes and potentially throwing off their numbers as well. Uh, yeah. I mean, that's, uh, that's wildly co complex. I assume to, to, to come to conclusions about those things. It, it is. And, um, what you're saying could happen. Right. That okay. is a plausible outcome. Wolves could um, add to the mortality that's already happening and drive down that population. But the other alternative is that wolves um, and those other predators could be killing deer that would die of other causes, for instance, starvation. Um, and so from the perspective I took on this project, it's really looking at both predators and the forage base and what's driving the population right. dynamics. Because if you want to understand what the population is really sensitive to, you have to look at it from both sides. Right. Have you seen differences in the forage base, as you were saying? Because is there a lot of timber harvest or is that is that sort of shifted away? So is there less forage for the, for the ungulates? Is it mostly, like, what are you finding and how did you, because you were saying how you could come to those conclusions before? So there were kind of two big things that we looked at regarding forage on the project. And to back up a tiny bit, we had two different study areas one is the in the Okanagan National Forest, kind of centered on the Methow Valley 
area of Washington. For those unfamiliar, that's the east slope of the North Cascades. That area has been really hit by wildfires um, in the last 20 or so years. In fact, 40% of the area has burned in a wildfire since 1985. And that's actually a really big driver of forage dynamics in that system. Over in Northeast Washington, which is our other study area, there is quite a lot of timber harvest. I think it was something like 20% of, excuse me, 25%, about a quarter of the forested area has been harvested uh, for timber in the past 20 years. And in both those cases, you remove overstory canopy, you remove those trees, a lot more light reaches the understory and it triggers the regrowth of vegetation. So both of those things actually benefit the, um, or increase the resources available to deer. Okay. So, you know, so, and does the wildfire, because I, I know, again, living living in California for almost a decade now, I, I tend to somewhat understand about when people talk about we, have, we haven't had control burns for a long time mm-hmm. to basically mm-hmm. regenerate the forest. It, was it have these wildfires? I know some of them have been extremely huge uh, over the course of time, but has that seen a positive effect in the way that you were saying just now about the timber harvest where all that there, it's like regenerating sort of that undergrowth and, and letting things to try and cleanse? Or has it been a negative aspect to all of the, the life that's there because so much has been taken away via fire or clearing? Yeah. So I wasn't able to get the funding to go in and actually measure forage regrowth after the fires, which I was able to do for the timber harvest. However, one of the things that was really interesting and surprising to me is that when we looked at mule deer movement in these burned areas, they were really using um, even those really severely burned areas after the fire for the regrowth. So that's telling us that this is still valuable habitat to them, at least in the summer. Um, And that suggests at least that it's probably due to that increase in vegetation that they're choosing to use those areas. So if, so at first, wow. So at first the, 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 the fire has an obvious negative impact on, on foraging, right? Because it's, it's burned it all, but then given there's enough moisture or, or at least a, a, an amount of moisture or, or of rain, then how long does it take for that to kind of turn into now, I guess, a new, a, a place that, that, deer might go back into because it's it, it does have this new regeneration and i assume that that regeneration is also is also fairly high in in nutrients um so how long does that kind of take how long is that cycle before deer would move back into an area that has been burned years before it's it's quite quick um really within a year wow. or two even later that season wow wow and wow. i think one piece um that i should explain is that we're often talking about these very thick overgrown forests. So there's no light reaching the first forest floor and there's nothing green growing in the understory. So then as soon as you clear out that canopy cover and the lights reaching it, you have all this, yeah, um, grasses and forbs and herbs growing up in there that the deer can target and eat uh, and it can come back quite quickly. Yeah, that is wild. Yeah, because I think I people I would imagine when they hear about these things about 
timber harvest or, or wildfire, obviously, I think the first go-to is negative, mm-hmm. obviously, because of just the devastation, the destruction, whatever it may be. But I mean, out here in California, it's more when you get to the the home, you know, everybody who loses their houses and things like that. And obviously, we're talking about wild places that we don't want burned as well. But I think to see the positive aspects is is good to note that there is a regeneration or a clearing that can happen maybe more so in wildfire. I mean, how do, how do people react about the timber harvest aspect of it? Um, is that part of the economy? Is that why that's done? Is it a controlled harvest? I'm not really aware of like how that works in Washington state. Could you shed a little more light on that? Yeah. So in Northeastern Washington, which is where most of that occurs within our two study areas, at least that's a pretty large part of the economy out there. And it has been for a long time. And you really see timber harvest happening at all kinds of scales. So this could be a private landowner who has their 40 acres and they remove a few trees a year, um, you know, from, from the back 40, what have you, to some really large scale industrial timber harvest where they are clear cutting everything across the mountainside. Um, so it's it's a wide spectrum of impacts, but uh, pretty prevalent in that area. And what are the, because I'll go back to the human aspect uh, for just a minute, because I think, what are, you, what are you noticing or what did you notice for the majority of the part while you were in really in depth in this specific study about the predator prey dynamic? I guess within the social tolerance aspect, because again, we're not talking about, I mean, we are specifically talking about wolves to a degree, but there's so many other predators there, as you said, you know, cougars and bear and bobcat and lynx or whatever it may be. So there's a lot in that section. Is it that people are accepting of the natural reintegration of these predators and understanding that Prey is moving. Ungulates are not going to stay in one place. The normal, you know, the normal cycle of how nature is supposed to go. Or is it, is is there an anti-predator aspect that you've seen while you were working on the ground? Yeah, I think you get a bit of everything. Um, our study area in the Northeast is centered around Chewila, Washington, and as you drive into town think about a mile outside of kind of getting to the main intersection. There's this big billboard and it has some very dramatic photos of cougars and wolves on it. And I can't quite remember exactly what it says, but it's something to the effect of dangerous predators in the area. So there's certainly some strong anti-predator sentiment out there. Um, I think there's some very loud voices on that side. And there's also people out there who live there because they love the wildlife, whether that's the predators um, or the prey species living out in that environment. So you really do get some of everything. Um, I think most people have a much more nuanced perspective on it than is captured in the media. Um, But there is some strong anti-predator perspectives in that area. So were there obvious results to studying the impact that wolves might have on predators like uh, mountain lions and coyotes, uh, for example, or, or, or bears, I guess, as well. Um, you know, like in a rapid fire form, does more, do more wolves mean, um, 
well, not less mountain lions in the case of mountain lions because they likely just dis- disperse, I guess. But do more mountain do more wolves mean less coyotes? Do more mountain lion do more wolves mean more dispersed mountain lions? Less mountain lions, um, less bears. I mean, what's the what's the summarized version of of that? Yeah. So some of my collaborators are still working on the research, looking at cougar wolf interactions. Uh, but we just had a really nice paper come out in science um, a couple months ago looking at wolf impacts on coyote and bobcat populations. And it's a pretty cool story because what we see is that uh, wolves in the study area tend to live in the area where people are not. Um, so people are mainly in the valley bottoms. Right. Wolves tend to be at higher elevation forested areas to avoid people. So because of this risk of being killed by a wolf, which is a very real threat if you're uh, a bobcat or especially if you're a coyote, yeah, these mid-sized predators actually come closer to the human population centers trying to avoid wolves. Um, But the result is they're actually much more likely to die because they get shot or trapped. So wolves do kill coyotes directly but they also kill them indirectly by pushing them towards people wow. more than die by human causes wow that's yeah. wild stuff mm-hmm. i didn't even think i didn't even think about the the drive just the indirect driving portion of that of yeah. moving the animals around even though the, i kind of mentioned there's only so much space woods. it's like you know at some point animals get mm-hmm. bumped yeah. into human habitat or yeah humans yeah. are in animal habitat yeah exactly Wow, uh, that's crazy. Taylor, when you're describe the areas too, because you were you're mentioning Northeast Wild, like describe the study areas because it seems as though it's we're talking about massive. Are they massive forests? Are we talking you know tall trees? You know shaded areas? Like where are you guys? What are the conditions? What are the environments like that you guys are studying these these types of all of this research in roughly? Yeah, so northeastern Washington is. Uh, as I mentioned before, the study areas are kind of sitting on the town of Chewila and then up to the North Colville, Washington. Uh, it's it's basically north of Spokane a little bit, like right up against the Canada and Idaho borders. So it's these beautiful rolling mountains that are pretty historically densely forested with um, hemlocks and Douglas fir and some ponderosa. Uh, some big old trees, if you can find areas that haven't been harvested, certainly at some of the higher elevations. And there's a very active timber harvest industry in there. So it's really patchworked by these clear cuts that have happened. You can actually see it if you're looking, you know, at Google Maps imagery or something. It's like a checkerboard pattern through much of the area from those timber harvest effects. And then along the valley bottoms, you see a lot more agriculture and ranching. You know, the towns there are pretty small, maybe a couple thousand people, um, if that. And uh, summers are warm, winters are cool and snowy. Um, So that's our our Northeastern Washington study area. One of the things that makes work interesting out there is it's about three quarters of the land is privately owned. So a lot of work to interface with private landowners, which uh, is really wonderful and also can be very challenging and complicate data collection. Are the- On the other- Oh, go for it. Oh, no, go for it. 
I was going to say, on the other hand, are um, more north central Washington study area, kind of in the Okanagan National Forest on the east slope of the North Cascades, really centered around um, the Methow Valley, Mazama and Winthrop and Twisp, if folks are familiar with that area, is quite a bit drier. It's also very forested, but bigger mountains, um, steeper terrain, rockier uh, and drier as well, and, and has been really impacted by wildfires in the last um, 40 or so years. Do the do, Does the wolf population seem to hang out at high elevations all year round over there? They tend to be at higher elevations to be away from people. Um, and, and wolves are particularly well adept at navigating really snowy landscapes. So more so than some of the other populations they are, or some of the other species there, they tend to be at higher elevation through the year. So they're not migrating much in terms of elevation changes. Like they're, they're, are, they're, are they following elk in, in their winter ranging and their summer ranging changes or? Yeah, that's a good question. It isn't something that I have specifically looked into, but when you look at what a wolf can cover during a day, I mean, that is about the extent of what any of our elk <laughs> might do in a right. seasonal migration. Sure. Um, the elk in the area we were studying them are a little bit more nomadic than strictly migratory of having like a very distinct summer range and a very distinct winter range. But when they do move about, I mean, that's, that's nothing for a wolf to cover in a short period of time. Wow. <laughs> Just guess that's true. Yeah. Cause it's, it's wild. Mm -hmm. Does that checkerboard aspect of that Northeastern study area, have you found that, and again, I guess, I guess we're talking about historical to roughly now what we're, what we're talking about in these four or five years where what you guys are studying, is that dynamic seem to fracture a lot of these populations in terms of where they can go, where they can migrate? Because if we're talking about animals that are trying to find their way to a safe spot, wolves, you know, if we talk about wolves, they're trying to stay away from humans. So there are certain parts where they obviously know that humans are, they're going to stay away from that. Same for ungulates, same for bobcats, same for cougar. Obviously, is it does the patchwork make it more difficult? Have you guys been able to sort of see that over the course of the project, or have they adapted enough to where they just sort of know these literally these checkerboards or these squares are places we're going to stay out of? If you're strictly looking at it from a satellite view or, or just looking at it on its face, yeah. So, most of those you know checkerboard spots that we're seeing are areas that were harvested for timber sometime in the past 20 or so years, probably. That can actually be really good habitat for some species. Um, so for instance, white-tailed deer, which I spent quite a bit of time studying, really thrive in those environments. Again, you clear out all that overstory that wasn't light, letting light hit the ground, where there was nothing growing on the understory. When you remove that, it actually triggers a lot of vegetation regrowth. Um, and so you will often see quite a lot of deer in those areas. It can really benefit them. And actually some of my research has showed that, um, the timber harvest in the area has actually benefited the deer population and kind of positively influences their population growth rate. So when you talk about these habitat changes, it very much depends on the species that you're considering. Right. 
Yeah, because you want to you want to make it clear that it's yeah certain things will help others. And like you were just saying about the bobcat and the coyote that are being pushed down by the wolves coming back into those higher elevations, they come into the the, the town portions, and that's where we see I guess the the hunting and the trapping and those animals being affected that way. You also studied, uh, I believe, and correct me if I'm wrong, you were studying to, you studied snowpack dynamics, right? Was that something that you were involved in a little bit? So I did a little bit of that work on the predator prey project. Um, That's actually what I'm focusing on more now, though, for some research. Yeah. On the predator prey project where we were looking at it, it's kind of the flip side of those wildfires. So I talked a little bit earlier about how the fires burn through and it triggers the regrowth of the understory vegetation for deer. Well, that's just half the story. That's in the summer. In the winter, you don't have those big branches that collect snow as it's falling if it's a burned area. And so you actually can get much deeper snow in a wildfire burn than in an intact forest where the falling snow has been caught by the branches. Um, And so as a result of that, or we think because of that, in the winter, deer were really avoiding those burned areas. And so it's kind of a double-edged sword where the fires benefit the deer in the summer, but restrict um, their habitat options in the winter. Right. And that seems that it's, yeah, right. So you're saying, obviously, there's a flip-flop there. So it probably favors the predators that can walk on that snow or navigate that deep snow if they find, like you say, a sick or a starving animal that's on the landscape, whether it be elk or deer, they're going to be more apt to take advantage of that situation as opposed to the ungulates and vice versa. So it, it, it seems like the, the dyna- you guys have a pretty solid idea dynamically how these, you know, these animals are, are dealing with these multiple different situations across at least the two study areas that you guys have, have worked on for, for the better part of four to five years. Yeah. And, and you absolutely got it right there. Thinking about, you know, those deeper snow definitely favors predators who can move more easily. Um, in those environments, their paws kind of spread out and act like snowshoes, whereas deer hooves or elk hooves are going to sink right through that snow and they become really vulnerable to predators in those conditions. Yeah. So when, yeah. So when you're looking at this, um, and you're, and you're going into this more with the snowpack and, and things of that sort. How many other, when you look at the project as a whole, the predator prey project, how, how many different studies at any given time are going on, I, I guess at the same time that, you know, you're, cause you, it seems like a comprehensive study of the area or the areas that you're talking about. So, cause I know you said there's one that's talking, that's working on cougar wolf dynamic, there's another one that's, you know, you just finished up the, you know, we're talking about the ungulate research. So how many different studies at any given time are you guys dealing with in a calendar year or, or you know, for years on end? Yeah. So, I mean, the goal is really to look at it from as many perspectives as we can and try and, and get the full story of what's happening You know, we were collecting data concurrently for all of those projects very intensively from, um, early 2017 through the end of 2021, that looked like putting collars on white-tailed deer, elk, and mule deer, cougars, wolves, bobcats, and coyotes, and then trail cameras across both study areas. And so that was the really big um, data collection efforts. We had five different 
kind of principal investigators who are the project leads, two from the Department of Fish and Wildlife, three at the University of Washington, and then, you know, many other folks involved from the Department of Fish and Wildlife as well, um, and then, you know, many other folks out in the field collecting data with us, uh, and up to, I think, five different grad students working on this project, so a lot of research going on, and we're really just at kind of the front wave of starting to get some of that work published, which is really exciting. And how have those collaborations been? I, I know reading through, and the book that, by the way, I was referencing is The Return of Wolves. That's by uh, Eli F- uh, Frankovic, I think is how you pronounce his last name. Eli, I'm sorry if you're listening. <laughs> screwed up your last name. Um, so how are those collaborations for, for you as a, as a scientist, as a biologist working in the field? Um, it seems, obviously, we all know that any work in science, especially around predators, th- there's going to be some give and take, as you mentioned earlier, but your collaborations with fish and wildlife, your collaborations with individuals on private land, how do those typically pan out? Is it is it 50-50 or is it mostly in the positive or, or negative? What have you experienced? Oh, the, the collaborative element of this project is absolutely one of the highlights of working on it. It has been so cool to work with so many different people and learn from so many different people on this project. Not only are we collaborating, you know, directly with the researchers, but of course, there's the whole Department of Fish and Wildlife that has, you know, amazing people working for it. Um, We also have been lucky enough to work a bit with the Spokane Tribe of Indians and the Kalispell Tribe, and then many of our state land management agencies. And of course, the multitude of private land owners, I think, you know, hundreds of them who have helped them with our research by giving property access so we could go collect really important data that we need. You know, and you just learn so much from all of these different people. And it's also wonderful to be able to call up someone who's, you know, looking at the community dynamic side of the project and has these trail cameras and say, hey, I'm... I'm, you know, finding this weird result in my analysis. Have you seen this from your perspective? What do you think might be going on here? And so it's been really wonderful to get to work on a project that just draws on so many different perspectives and different skill sets. I mean, that's good to hear. It's good that there's a collaboration effort. It seems that everybody looks to be on board. Has there been, when we talk about, I guess the, and again, I'm referring back to the book, um, is that when we talk about the ranching industry, when you guys are, are working with those folks and dealing, I guess, with your research, and it, and it seems as though it's positive, which is great. And I, I, we love to hear that. And it seems as though there's a, there's a want for knowledge. There's a need for knowledge and understanding the landscape even more from your guys' perspective. Is there a, a certain way that you guys are able to give that research out of that information out to the public so that it's, it's, I want to say layman's terms, but just in a way that folks who aren't in the scientific community can understand it, can apply it, and then can spread it throughout their communities. What's the best way that you guys do that so it doesn't seem as though it's looked at as scientific speak, and then we don't understand it, so we're going to keep with our normal morals and and what we believe uh, just personally? Yeah. I mean, that's that's a really good point and a really big challenge. So if you have great ideas, let me know. (laughs) (laughs) But, you know, we've tried to do a lot by going back to the study areas as we've had 
more research findings come out and do public talks where we can share our findings with people. It is hard because our Northeast study area is six hours away from Seattle and we don't have the funding to go out there all the time and the time to you know put those talks together. But we try, we've tried to do public talks in both of our study areas and have done them. Um, certainly some of the ones have been recorded and are posted online on our website. We try and put as much material as we can on our website, both the original publications themselves. And then we've also written some public interest pieces. Uh, for instance, the conversation is um, a news outlet that has published some of the stories that we've written kind of distilling like, hey, here's the findings of our research and we're going to try and present this for the non-scientist. And then trying to do things like this to share you know, about what the project is, what the research is. There was a really neat video that came out a couple of years ago that the department put out about what we hope to accomplish with the project. It would be really wonderful if there was a follow-up to um, explain what we found with the research. And, you know, that research is still forthcoming. We're still working on getting it out there. But I do think that is one of the biggest challenges of this is how do we get that knowledge to the people who contributed just by letting us access their properties, um, what have you, uh, especially as the project is wrapped up now where there's not dedicated time and funding to do that. It becomes a little bit of a side project, but we're trying to get it out there on the website at the very least. Right. When you're looking at your future research specifically, I know we talked about snowpack dynamics and that's something mm -hmm. that you're working on. I did read too, and again, correct me if I'm if I'm not right on that. Um, it looks like you're you're working on something with public land management in the American West and and those sort of dynamics. Can you touch on that and and what that specifically is pertaining to? I guess again, the predator prey aspect of what that means, and and just go into it because I'll you know I'd rather you say it than me. <laughs> sure. <laughs> yeah. Um. So my kind of primary job right now is, is working as a postdoctoral researcher at the University of Washington, and I'm really focused on looking at how snowpack influences wildlife and interactions between species. Um, that's my nine to five. Uh, in the free time that I don't have very much of, I'm also working as a contractor for the U.S. Geologic Survey, and what we're trying to do there is take existing research around how ungulates are affected by non-motorized recreation and really distill that information down into a really usable format so that people who are making land management decisions and planning for trail use can better incorporate that research into their planning process um, and use more science and decision-making. So it's really fun to get to think it about about it from the other side of, you know, we have the science, how do we get it um, implemented more? How do we take what we've learned and make sure that gets used? Uh, there isn't much on that project regarding predator-prey dynamics. We touch on it here and there, but the main focus is just recreation and ungulates. You're talking about uh, mountain biking and, and things of that nature? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, how to hikers, mountain yep. bikers, whitewater rafters I see. influence okay. us. And then, you know, what does that tell us about how we should plan trail use? 
That's a great idea because we we found this when we were talking also about the Colorado reintroduction and just about we were talking with uh, one of the individuals from Colorado Parks and Wildlife that the recreation aspect, there are many folks out there who love, you know, the outdoors, recreational outdoors, hiking, biking, whatever it may be. And sometimes those activities can even have more of an impact on these populations than I think most are aware. Because I think people, as speaking from two individuals that hike on a fairly regular basis, I know Stephen goes into some pretty far out places where he's at. And it's, you realize that just the footprint, your literal footprint on some of these places has an impact of shifting these patterns of these, of these animals. So that's a great, obviously, start of research that you guys are trying to do because I think that's something that the public and those that are non-consumptive users of the environment, it's good for them to see that the flip side of that and that there's certain ways to, to handle this stuff when, you, when you're out in the environment doing the recreational things. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. What's the, what's your timeline? Is that another multi-year study for you? Uh, the one on, the, well, let's, let me ask this, this way. Is the snowpack dynamic, obviously these are running sort of parallel. What are sort of your timelines for the snowpack dynamic research and then also like the land management? Are they running, con- you know, concurrently? You're looking for two to three years out. What's something that you're looking to get out of it and the ultimate, uh, end goals for those? Uh, you, you said about the public land management, but like what's your timeline for both of these? Yeah. So I'll be on the snow wildlife project for about another year and a half. Um, okay. You know, in academia, it's all about how much funding you have and that's when the funding runs out. <laughs> of course. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so, you know, we'll be accomplishing as much as we can in that period of time. And there's a number of other folks working on that project. It's another collaborative effort, which is really wonderful. Uh, some folks working on PhDs on that project too. And we're really in the stage right now of trying to incorporate um, different data streams to get a really good model of the snowpack dynamics and how those change over the course of a season. And then I'm kind of applying that to the wildlife questions. Uh, so yeah, big push over the next year and a half for me anyways, next couple of years to get some of those publications out. And um, some of the collaborators have already done a great job and gotten some publications out on that one as well. So we're starting to really learn some interesting, interesting things. Over on the ungulate recreation side, so because we are taking existing research, um, that's kind of on a fast track. And I'm really lucky that I get to contribute to this project, but by no means am I the one leading it. Um, it's it's here and there as I have time to contribute, and I'm lucky that other people are really driving it forwards, but we're hoping to have these documents out for it um, early next year. So hopefully getting those to managers and decision makers soon. Wow, very cool. That's great. That's fantastic. That's really great. Yeah. I guess to summarize to what, what you've said, and thank you for really explaining this project, because again, as, a, as we're reading the book, it just sort of highlights here and not highlights, but there's a good sections of it. And you just don't know all the work that goes into it and all the collaboration that happens in your professional opinion or your professional, um, you know, what you've seen over the course of time, do you, 
and you may have answered this already, and I apologize if I asked it again. Do you feel that because the collaboration is so good between the community, between this, the agencies, between the project, between your research that you've done, that the social tolerance aspect, I, I know we've obviously there are people that dislike predators for whatever the reason may be, but do you feel because the, the information is out there, because the collaboration is so transparent that there's a little bit more of an acceptance of the natural environment in the way that it's supposed to be with the predator prey dynamics, um, not only for, you know, for wolves, but also for, you know, bears and cougars and other predators that are there in the landscape. Yeah, I guess I should clarify that the perspective that the collaboration has been really productive and valuable is very much my perspective on it as a researcher. Got it. I don't okay. know that that's the same perspective of many of the private landowners out there, um, you know, or folks who are living in these study areas. I have certainly found that when approaching people and saying that I was coming from the University of Washington as a researcher, as a grad student, that they were much more open to our research and our project than, you know, some experiences that folks at Fish and Wildlife may have. I think, you know, as a grad student, you're lucky in that you're not at all engaged in the management side of things. Um, lucky in terms of how that shapes your perspective or the perspective of landowners and working with you. Um, I guess unlucky in the sense that, you know, you don't really get to contribute to that, but, um, you know, so, so that's my perspective as a researcher, but not necessarily the perspective of folks within the study area. And I know there is um, quite a bit of animosity from some individuals towards the Department of Fish and Wildlife who, you know, almost certainly would disagree. That <laughs> said, uh, <laughs> some of the researchers on the project, we have made a really big effort to try and get the research to people and to try and share it. I know we could do better. Um, it's always a challenge, especially when that's not what we're being paid to do right now. But I do hope that it is received. Um, I do hope that people are uh, able to take it with the best intentions. Um, I think some people are going to be really interested in it. And uh, some, you know, folks may may not fully understand what we did and um, take issue with it. But, you know, we do the best we can. No, you guys are doing a great job. And I think it's, again, I, I, I do, anybody who's listening to this, definitely go to the the website. Actually, Taylor, can you give everybody just the, the best place to look at all of this research? Because I, I think I have the website up, but I'd rather, you know, have everybody hear from you. Just give everybody the, the website, places that they can find this research, places that, you know, they can find all this information so that even if they're outside of the state of Washington, they get an idea of the research, the information that's going out there. That's the effort that's being put into these dynamics and making sure that uh, everything gets out there to the public? Yeah, the best place to start would be going to predatorpreyproject.weebly.com. And if you just Google Washington Predator Prey Project, you will find our website. And we have made a really big effort to keep that updated. If you look at the, there's a products um, tab on that page that shows all the publications that we've created um, and other associated items. You can watch videos of presentations that we've given. 
And then there's another tab that has an updates and a in the news section. And so any kind of publicly oriented pieces you can find there um, from articles that we've written for the general public to films and um, other interviews. And uh, eventually this podcast will be listed there as well. So those, the Predator Prey Project website is a great place to start. And we've really tried to make it a hub for the academic research and the public side of the project. That's awesome. And my last question, actually, no, I've, no, that's be my last question. All right. I'm sorry. <laughs> Sometimes I get brain, brain farts. Um, uh, my last question for you, Taylor, is when you hear the word wolf, what is the thing that comes to your mind? Hmm. I think of an incredibly resilient creature that's also incredibly challenged living in the Anthropocene, living with humans. And I also think of kind of a mirror back on ourselves and how we view the wild and wild places and wild creatures and the different perspectives we take to looking at those. I love that. That's a great, that's a great answer on that one. Um, Taylor, this has been fantastic. Thank you again for all the, the previous research you did for the research that you're going to do and really being open to the conversation and just telling everybody about all the incredible stuff that you guys are doing over there. Thank you so much for, for everything you've done and you're going to do in the future. Really appreciate you talking to us. Well, thanks so much for having me. And I really appreciate you guys helping uh, get our project out there and share some of our findings. Absolutely. Yeah. Just stick around for a minute while we sign off. Uh, how's to y'all out there and Steve, I'll be with you next time. Bye everybody. Looking for more information about Wolf Connection or the podcast? Please visit our website at wolfconnection.org where you can donate, sponsor a wolf, or become a volunteer.